Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada, and I am your host. And I'm going to be continuing in this mini-series. I really actually don't know how many episodes it's going to end up being. But nonetheless, the series on Common Grace. And so the first episode was just an introduction. And really, I just briefly defined Common Grace and got the really the, the discussion rolling a little bit. Um, primarily by comparing it to God's special saving grace. And so generally, again, common grace is a grace that is shown to to all humanity. Um, it's temporal, it's not eternal, uh, and it's not particular like the grace that God shows his elect. So again, uh, just a, a really brief definition. Common grace is God's temporal favor towards all humanity. Now, really, if you really get into common grace, what it is is it's a restraining grace. God graciously restrains depraved humans from being as evil as they could possibly be. Now, think about it this way. Not everybody is a Hitler or Stalin or Mao. Uh, You know, your average person that you're going to run across on the street or in your work or in your family, really, they're not going to be a serial killer. Uh, they're not going to be a rapist. They're, they're not going to be absolutely to the max, you know, of wickedness. And this is because of common grace, which is a restraining grace. Uh, now, such restraint really allows humanity to progress in various ways. This allows the non-believing world to progress in making music and Art and technology and, and, and medicine, uh, all these wonderful things come from God's restraining grace, God's common grace. So we kind of briefly, or I briefly kind of got into that a little bit last, last episode. Now, this is really how John Calvin describes common grace. Uh, he describes it as a restraining grace. He doesn't use the word or, or the title common grace, but He does talk about a grace that God gives to humanity that restrains them. And I want to actually quote Kelvin here, a a pretty large quote, so bear with me here. And uh, this is from the second book, chapter 3, section 3. But we ought to consider that notwithstanding the corruption of our nature, there is some room for divine grace. Such grace as, without purifying it, may lay it under internal Restraint. For did the Lord let every mind lose to wanton in its lusts? Doubtless there is not a man who would not show that his nature is capable of all the crimes crimes with which Paul charges it, Romans 3 compared with Psalm 14, 13, etc. Can you exempt yourself from the number of those whose feet are swift to shed blood, whose hands are foul with rapine and murder, whose throats are like open graves, whose tongues are deceitful, whose lips are venomous? whose actions are useless, unjust, rotten, deadly, whose soul is without God, whose inward parts are full of wickedness, whose eyes are on the watch for deception, whose minds are prepared for insult, whose every part, in short, is framed for endless deeds of wickedness. If every soul is capable of such abominations, and the apostle declares this boldly, it is surely easy to see what the result would be if the Lord were to permit human passion to follow its bent. No ravenous beast would rush so fiercely, no stream, however rapid and violent, so impetuously burst its banks. In the elect, God cures these diseases in the mode which will shortly be explained. In others, he only lays them under such restraint as may prevent them from breaking forth to a degree incompatible with the preservation of the established order of things. Hence how much soever men may disguise their impurity, Some are restrained only by shame, others by a fear of the laws from breaking out into many kinds of wickedness. Some aspire to an honest life as deeming it most conducive to their interest, while others are raised above the vulgar lot that by the dignity of their station they may keep inferiors to their duty. Thus God, by his providence, curbs the perverseness of nature, preventing it from breaking forth into action yet without rendering it inwardly pure. So, that was kind of a large quote, so hopefully you were able to understand that and follow along. But nonetheless, 
Calvin clearly sees that there is a restraining grace that God shows to the non-believer. And he, he makes sure to say it doesn't purify them. It restrains them, simply. Every human being still has in themselves the potential and ability to do all the things that Paul lists in Romans 3. To be open graves, to, to, to have the venom of asps under their lips, you know, all, all those things. So it's a restraining grace to the non-believer, not a purifying grace, which a purifying grace is, is a particular grace only shown to the elect. Now, common grace, it stems really from God's patience because the non-believer will obviously one day be judged eternally. Um, the fact that they aren't judged at this moment is because God is patient with them. And in this, in this time of patience, that's when you start to see where man can actually experience the good things of creation. Now, I said this last week, that the beginning point of the doctrine of common grace, as we understand it biblically, is the Noahic covenant. And we're going to spend the rest of this episode thinking and talking about the Noahic covenant. And like I said last week as well, in the last episode, we're going to be staying pretty close to Abraham Kuyper's treatment of common grace and the Noahic covenant, at least in this episode. Um, Kuiper, again, has written probably probably the largest work on common grace uh, that I know of, at least. And he's the one that really fleshed it out kind of in in its entirety. Man, you you look at the the three volumes that he wrote on it and you go, wow, he he seemed (laughs) like... (laughs) Try to answer every question he possibly could about about God's common grace, but yeah, let's uh, let's think about the Noahic covenant now. Obviously, we see this this covenant um, in the the beginning part of Genesis. You know, we don't we don't get far into Genesis after you know Adam and Eve, and then their descendants, and you know, think of Cain and Abel, and then before you know it, you're to chapter six, and the state of the world is is pretty bad extremely bad. So bad uh, that in chapter 6 verse 5 we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then if we actually jump down a few more verses to verse 11, it says this again, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, des- I will destroy them with the earth. We'll stop there. So, the state of humanity is, is bad. You could say that at this point, there really is no restraining grace keeping man from doing what man wants to do. And that's why we read then that Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's just pure chaos, pure wickedness, pure pure lawlessness. It's just it's horrible. So what's God's solution? Well, his solution is to is to kill every human being, to to kill all flesh, all animals, except Noah and his family, except eight individuals and the animals obviously that come onto the ark with him. Now, we're going to skip ahead and go past all of the ark stuff. And we're going to get to the end of chapter 8, um, verse 20. And we're going to read the Noahic Covenant. Now, I'm going to read, again, a pretty large portion of Scripture here. So, this podcast is going to have a lot of large block quotes. So, 
bear with me as I try to articulate <laughs> the written word. Um, but I'm just going to start reading again in verse 20 of chapter 8, and I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 9. So this is after the flood has subsided, and they get off of the ark, and we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I want to pause there and just say we are starting to see now the Noahic covenant come out, but at this point, God just says this in his heart. So he, he we get a picture into God's own mind, you could say, and, and he has the intention of, of never again cursing the ground because of man. So I pick up again. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, there it is. Again, a pretty large section of scripture. Hopefully you were able to follow along maybe in your own Bibles, <laughs> or you're probably just driving, actually, so you probably weren't able to, but nonetheless, let's think about this now. If we think about the elements of this covenant, first we see that it's it's an unconditional covenant. There are, there are no stipulations. There are not, you know, if I make this covenant with you and you will be blessed, if you, you know, do this, X, Y, and Z, if you obey my commandments, if you do this, da-da-da-da-da. You know, that, that type of uh, covenant we see in, in the Mosaic Covenant. But with this, no. It's it's totally an unconditional covenant. There are no stipulations. It's unilateral, which means that God alone establishes it. He just says, hey, I'm making my covenant with you. It's unilateral. Uh, again, there's no covenant transgression. Man can't transgress the covenant. God, by a sovereign grace, promises to keep it no matter what. And it's a covenant, again, that provides stability to the world. And this stability will provide the necessary conditions on earth to bring about the plan for the fullness of time, to really bring about, you know, the work that Christ will do on the cross, the work in redeeming a people for himself. Now, I want to emphasize the repetition that is used through, throughout this section. 
God makes the covenant with Noah, his sons, the offspring after them, and with all the animals as well. Look at verse 9. Or, I mean, if you don't have a Bible, just listen to verse 9 again of chapter 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. So the covenant is for it's for every living creature. It's, it's for every creature that, that breathes the atmosphere that God has surrounded the earth with. It's it's for every creature that has the breath of life in it. Every animal, every bird, Noah, his sons, their offspring, all human beings to come after them. Which means that the covenant is still operating today. We are still underneath the, the Noahic covenant. This covenant still applies to us today. And if it still applies to us today, then we probably should do some work to understand it correctly. And so the general nature of the Noahic covenant, the fact that it's made with every living creature, that is repeated six times. Again, the repetition, six times total. <laughs> That's like blinking you know, lights that say, hey, pay attention to this, this general nature of the Noahic covenant. Pay attention to this. This is for everybody. This isn't particular. It's general. It's common. And again, that sets it against the particular spiritual and eternal nature of God's covenant with the elect. At this point, now it's time to consider the purpose of the Noahic covenant. The purpose. And I've already alluded to the purpose of God's common grace. And so this will be very similar to that. I want to quote Kuiper here. He says this, the covenant seeks to make the church possible and to secure a place of rest for the church. But it does not involve the church as such. This covenant involves man as man, man in his society on earth with other men, man in his relationship to the animals, and man in his relationship to the destructive elements of nature. So, okay, we start to see that the purpose of the covenant seeks to make the church possible. So keep that in mind. Just hold that there as a, as a, as a purpose. Um, again, we, we talked about how the purpose of the covenant is to create stability in the world. Part of the stability is, is to make possible the future church that will one day come when Christ dies on the cross, is resurrected, and then pours out his spirit on the disciples at Pentecost, and that's when we see the the beginning point of the church. So none of that would have been possible if, if there wasn't stability in the in the world to to allow all these generations to to progress to eventually bring forth Christ. But then I wanna I wanna highlight again more specifically why the stability is needed. Look at Genesis eight twenty one or again listen to me read it. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So, why the stability? Well, the reason is, man's heart has not changed. Pre and post flood. Pre flood, we read, hey, man's heart's evil and his intentions are only evil continually. All that he does now is evil. His behavior is evil. Everything about him is, is just evil. There's no restraint. Why is his intentions and everything that he does always evil continuously? Because his heart is evil. Now we come after the flood and man's heart is still evil. But at this point, he hasn't progressed to doing evil continually, if that makes sense. External actions of, of just doing evil. But he still has the, the source of it an evil heart. So at this point now, God makes this covenant and, and part of this covenant is a, is a restraining grace so that man doesn't progress again to the state that he was at before the flood. Hopefully that makes sense. So why do we need the stability of the covenant that the covenant provides? Because man's heart is still evil. And we don't want man to get to the point to where he's only doing evil continually. 
like he was at before the flood. So we see a similarity of the reason why God flooded the earth and the reason why God doesn't flood the earth, if that, if that makes sense. I'm going to quote Kuiper again. He says, Before and after the flood, the sinner is just as evil in the core of his being. But the difference lies in this, that the restraining power proceeding from common grace against sin has become increased from God's side after the flood. The beast within man remains just as evil and wild, but the bars are around its cage were fortified. But the bars around its cage were fortified so that it cannot again escape like it used to. So, Kuiper describes man's sinful nature as this beast within him. And before the flood, there wasn't, there weren't these bars restraining him, this cage around him, and he was able to break forth and, and go wherever he wanted to go and do whatever he wanted to do. But now, the bars around his cage have been fortified so that he cannot escape like he used to before the flood. Very interesting. But I want to I want to draw your attention again to this 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 purpose of the church. Uh, the purpose of this covenant is still oriented towards the elect. Yes, the covenant applies to all human beings, affects all human beings in some way. But the spiritual purpose is still oriented towards the elect. In a sense, the Noahic covenant serves the covenant of grace. It provides the consistency that we need in this world for the covenant of grace to come about, for the new covenant really to to come about, for Christ to be able to be incarnated into this world and, and do his work. Another quote from Kuiper, he says this, You reach the spiritual significance of the Noahic covenant only when you look past its content, its special promise and its subjects, humankind and animals, to which that promise extends, and approach the subject from a completely different angle and ask, for what purpose was this covenant established? Then it will become obvious that the purpose of this covenant of God's grace can lie not with the lost, but with the elect. Consequently, this purpose is to be sought in Christ, in his people and their future, and through Christ in the glorification of the Lord's decree and name. Now, I want us to consider this a little bit more, dig into this a little bit. Okay, if the spiritual significance of the covenant is still oriented towards God's particular people, his elect, and God's elect are scattered throughout space and time, then we need something, again, I keep repeating this word stability or consistency, we need something to to create the consistency and stability in this world to allow for every elect individual to come about at their preordained time. So, again, this is this comes from a very high view of God's sovereignty. I, If you've listened to this podcast at all, you, you realize that I'm, you know, unashamedly Calvinistic from all five points, you can go back and listen to that series on the doctrines of grace. Nonetheless, I tr- I totally affirm the fact that God has foreknown and predestined those whom he would say before the foundation of the world. I absolutely affirm that God has written out each of our days before there were any of them. Psalm 139. And I absolutely affirm that God has ordained the exact moment when every single individual who will ever live will actually come into this world, be conceived, and be born. And so I'll use myself as an example. My birth date, April 29th, 1996, and obviously that was when I was born. It's just nine months before that, conception. That moment, that moment was ordained by God when I would be conceived, when I would become a human being. And have a soul. And that means, if we go back to Noah, that the right two people and the right sperm and the right egg had to come together for thousands of generations leading up to me. For me to be even a possibility. Because God didn't just ordain that a guy, a 
nicknamed Sam Parada was going to exist. No, he ordained my biology, my body, my DNA, me as a specific, unique individual, who I am. He ordained. And when he foreknew me, he foreloved me, he, he, he loved me as a unique individual, not just some generic name. No, me specifically, including my physical being and my spiritual being, my soul. Everything that makes me up. And we know from genetics that our biology, our, our phenotype, we derive, we get, we inherit from our parents. And the genetic information that makes that up is, is provided, half of it, 23 chromosomes provided in the sperm, 23 chromosomes provided in the egg. The egg and the sperm come together, boom, 46 chromosomes, that's all the DNA that you need to create a human being. All of that, that specific chromosomal set is a result, again, of the exact two people and the exact sperm of millions of sperm and the exact egg, hundreds of eggs, coming together at the right time in history all the way back to the time of Noah. And so God's elect are scattered throughout time and space. I being an elect, I was ordained to exist at this time. Now, it may be the fact that there are some elect individuals who were ordained by God to come into existence, to be born into this world 50 years from now. And there needs to be some stability something keeping the world stable enough to allow for people to continue to come together, mate, to create new offspring. That is obviously a high view of God's sovereign control. And I absolutely believe it's biblical. The Noahic covenant provides that stability so that the elect will come into existence, so that the gospel would be brought to them, so that they would be saved, scattered, throughout thousands of years. I think that's pretty cool. Now, I want to briefly talk about the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. We still see rainbows, obviously. We look up when it's raining, and the light of the sun shines in the right way through the water droplets, creates this obviously beautiful spectrum of light, and it's incredible. It's beautiful. But I think it's really ironic, and we all know this, we all know how ironic it is that the LGBTQ community has adopted the rainbow as their symbol, as their banner. The covenant that allows the non-believer to live in this world, God's world, and to have a life and to experience the good things of creation and to not be instantly judged. That covenant and then its sign, the rainbow, that is the sign that they adopt as their symbol. It it mocks it. They mock God's patience. They mock God's grace. They mock common grace. They mock the Noahic covenant. It's so ironic. It's like, oh God, you have given me some some freedom to do what I want to do. Okay, I'm just going to basically spit in your face. But remember, the Noahic covenant isn't an eternal covenant. It's temporal. It's natural. So one day there will be no more rainbows shining in the sky to remind us of God's temporal grace that he shows humanity. One day there will be fire coming down from heaven as God judges the world. So keep in mind that the Noahic covenant is not eternal. God's patience will end one day and judgment will come. Okay, let's now move into the last section of this episode, the the means of restraint. The means of restraint. How does God practically restrain sin and restrain man's sinful nature in this world? Remember, remember Kuiper calls it a, a cage. He God has fortified the bars of the cage so that man in his wickedness can't burst out of the cage and go do what he wants to do. What are the bars, practically speaking, that restrain man? And again, we believe that God is sovereign over the means 
just as he's sovereign over the end of the means. Think of evangelism. God is sovereign over who he saves, but he's also sovereign over the fact that he has ordained that man will be saved by hearing the gospel message. So he will send messengers and preachers and proclaimers of the gospel message to, to save his lost sheep. So he's sovereign over the end, but also the means to the end. So what are these means? Let's go back to our text. Let's look specifically at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll call this the blessings of the covenant, the blessings of the Noahic covenant. And we'll loosely connect blessing with means. That makes sense. I'll read that again. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now I want to draw your attention to the fact that this section begins with be fruitful and multiply and it ends with be fruitful and multiply. And in biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, we call this an inclusio, which means that everything in between these two book ends, uh, these be fruitful and multiplies, uh, is a part of the same thing. It's related to each other. And we would say that they're all the blessings of the covenant. Now, I'm going to quote Kuiper again. He says, What lies included between both of these explicit blessings involves the following. First, man is given moral supremacy over all the animals. Second, man receives permission to eat the flesh of the animals. Third, man is prohibited from eating raw meat with its blood. Fourth, God provides the establishment of government and the institution of the death penalty. These four items are to be understood as expressions of grace, and only in that way can they correctly can they be correctly understood. So we're just going to work through those four things that Kuiper wonderfully illuminates to us. The first one is this. Man is given moral supremacy over the animals. Again, we're we're asking the question, what are the bars of the cage? What are the means in which man's sinfulness is restrained? What are the means in which man uh, is allowed to live on this earth and not just die, not be ended? Keep that in mind. So this first one, man is given moral supremacy over the animals. We tend to gloss over this, but this is really important. And Kuiper really fleshes this out well in his, in his treatment of Common Grace, Volume 1. And the point is this. Eight people, eight human beings get off the ark. And what else comes off the ark? A bunch of animals. A bunch of animals. Which we would assume included among those animals are lions and tigers and bears and things that, animals that could absolutely just devour human beings if they wanted to. Predators. And so you have all these animals coming off the ark, all these predators, these beasts, and eight human beings primitive human beings, meaning they don't have machine guns, bear spray. (laughs) They don't have weapons that have been designed to kill large animals. They're completely vulnerable. At this point, at this point in time, if some of the animals just decide, you know what? I've been on the ark for a while I've been eating sparingly. You know, I'm kind of a little bit hungry, and these human beings sure look tasty. I think I'm I'm just going to take a bite of some of them. Boom, boom, wipe them out. That could have happened. That could have happened. Man is vulnerable. He's especially vulnerable right after the flood. The human race could have ended at that point. Animals are 
superior to human beings in many ways, specifically in their strength, in their senses, their smell, their hearing, their eyes. Of our five senses, I don't know if there's anything that human beings actually are superior in. The thing that man is superior in is obviously his mind, his intellect, and the fact that he is an image bearer. But nonetheless, consider the planet of the apes. Obviously, Kuiper was before the time of the planet of the apes. I think the first novel came out in the 60s, maybe, and then movies after that. But same idea, basically. Like, okay, hey, look at a, look at a, a chimpanzee. Look at a gorilla. And we've all done this. If we've been into a zoo or we watched videos or whatever, like, they're ripped. They're somewhat intelligent, you know, more intelligent than most animals. And if they decided to just go berserk on you and, and unleash their strength on you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't survive unless you had, like, a handgun or a, a gun or something or a sword and kn- knew how to use it. <laughs> like, they would kill you easily. Easily. And so, give a chimpanzee a human intellect, and well, what happens? They take over the world. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> so, the same idea here. These beasts could kill Noah and his family if they wanted to. So, what does God say? What's one of these blessings of the covenant? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. The fear of you. God put the fear of man in the animals. Think about this. We know this is true from experience. Especially if you are an outdoorsman and you encounter wild animals in, you know, in the wild, not in a zoo or domesticated animals. Like they, they run. They almost always run. No matter what kind of animal they are, they almost always run away. Obviously, we know the exceptions where... Somebody is brutally attacked by a bear or a wolf or, or a mountain lion or whatever it is. But those are, the, those are the, the vast minority of experiences between human beings and wild animals. The vast minority. Vast minority. In most cases, if you were to come into contact with a wild animal, they're going to run away. And usually the exceptions are you come across a bear and her cubs. Okay. You add in the factor of she has she has babies with her. So she turns into mama bear. Or you you come in between uh you know a predator and their food. Okay. There's another factor there, but if you just come across a predator and offspring and food aren't in play, they're going to run away. They're going to run away. And I was thinking about this reality. Um just a few weeks ago, I was out hunting on some public land and bow hunting for deer. And a part of this public land is used as um, pasture land for for local ranchers in the area. And so they they there's hundreds of cows out there grazing. And I was walking back from where I was bow hunting, and I was walking in the dark, and I had to I had to probably walk about a mile to get to my car. And I had to walk through a bunch of cattle, like hundreds of them. And, like, the cattle, you know, they're used to human beings. So it's, this isn't a great example. But the point is, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, man, at any moment, if one of these cows decided to, you know, unleash their strength on me, I would die. I would die. Like, there's nothing that I could do. There's nothing that I could do to stop them. And it's just like, man. That's crazy. And yet I'm walking through hundreds of cattle with no worry. Why? Well, they're cows, but two, because God has placed the fear of man on animals. They fear me in some sense. And that is a a blessing of the Noahic covenant. And that allows human beings to survive in a world that has creatures that could kill them. Common grace. We take that for granted. Point number two that Kuiper makes. Man receives permission to eat the flesh of the animals. Man receives permission to eat the flesh of the animals. So, before the fall, you know, and when we think about the garden, God gave to man plants to eat. Every tree 
you may eat of, except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So man, they were they were they were herbivores. They 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 ate fruits and, and berries and plants, leaves and things, and grass. <laughs> Which kinda of sounds horrible, but anyway, that's what man ate. Now we don't wanna say with like dogmatically that human beings weren't eating animals before the flood. We, man was wicked. We are assuming that man was killing animals and eating them as well. But God did not uh, allow them. He did not tell them that they could eat animals. But we're assuming that in man's wickedness, he was doing it anyway. But now, we get a clear allowance from God to eat animals. He says, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And again, think about this. God has commanded Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Go everywhere in the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, what is the, as we think about, you know, now we're thousands and thousands of years past this point and we've filled the earth and we have issues now with population growth too many people in some areas there's still a lot of land on this on this planet that is uninhabited by human beings but nonetheless we're we're to the point now where we're starting to think about population growth and obviously all the liberals and everybody oh climate change climate change oh this is a problem we're gonna you know we're gonna use up all the resources and we're gonna die so a food supply is is an issue with population growth do we have enough food to sustain that many people? Do we have enough food to sustain people as they fill the earth, every corner of the earth, so to speak? And if we were limited to only eating plants, maybe not. Maybe not. But now God has given us every animal as food as well. And this becomes very applicable to, say, the Eskimos, who I think like the vast majority of their diet, especially, you know, think before like modern technology where you have planes and, and ways to actually transport different types of food to these people. But before that, they, they basically just lived off of fish, meat. There's no uh, growing a garden on the ice. So human beings would not be able to inhabit that area of the world to fill the world uh, if they could not eat meat. So again, this is, a, this is a common grace gift. I'm giving you food so that you can fill the earth and you can survive and have sustenance and nourishment as you fill the earth. We have food to eat. That's a good thing. That's a common grace thing. Three, man is prohibited from eating raw meat with its blood. This isn't much of a, a means, you could say, but there's an exception now. Think about, hey, I give you all the trees of the garden to eat except this one tree. So I give you all the animals to eat. But here's the stipulation. Here's the exception to this, this blessing. You cannot eat it with its lifeblood in it. Now, now what does that mean? Some people... And maybe if you've read this passage of scripture before and you've thought about this, you go, does this mean that I can't eat a rare steak? Like, oh no, have I been, have I been sinning in this way because I've been eating rare steaks and rare burgers? No, no, you haven't. So just to relieve you a little bit, no, because I tell you what. The only way to eat a steak is rare or medium rare. You can maybe get away with medium, but man, and we all know this. Like, I, I mean, some of you are probably like, no, I like it well done. But, you know, you talk to you talk to any like professional chef, any Michelin star chef in this world, and he's going to say, yeah, red meat, a steak should be objectively cooked, medium rare, and no more. Like that, that is just known. We all know this. Now, that was a little bit of a tangent, but no, this doesn't mean that you can't have a rare steak. What does this mean then? You can't eat meat with its lifeblood in it, with its blood in it. Well, we have to understand how 
people during that time understood blood. Blood was thought to be the conduit of life. When when the blood is flowing and pumping in your body, you are alive. So it's it's really synonymous with the soul in a way. It's connected to, to the soul. If you have blood pumping in your body, your soul is still in your body. You're still alive. You still have life. So what God is saying here is that don't eat an animal like an animal. I'm giving you all the animals. It's a gracious thing. Here you are. All this food to enjoy. But you're not an animal. You're a human being. You're an image bearer of God. So don't just go and chomp on the hind quarter of a cow while it's still alive. While it still has its lifeblood in it. It's life. It's soul. So to speak. Wait until the animal is dead and then you can eat it. That's what this is saying. Wait until it's dead. Now, if you ever watch like the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet and you, or the BBC or whatever it is, those cool documentaries, and you watch like a pack of wolves going after an elk, and what you'll find and what you'll see often is that they will begin eating that elk. If they catch it, they'll begin eating that elk while that elk is still alive. That elk will be totally alive. There'll be a couple, you know, wolves hanging on its neck or whatever, trying to kill it, but couple more wolves on the back chomping on its hind quarters eating it literally eating it and enjoying it you see this all the time a bear does this too they'll start eating their 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 prey before it's dead that's what animals do they don't care they don't they don't they're not thinking about if this is alive or not or if this is ethical or not no they're 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 animals they're predators they just want to eat they're just totally guided by their desires and their cravings it's all their their they're driven by their hunger. But we're not animals. We're not animals. We're human beings. Act like a human being. Wait until this, this animal's dead and then eat it. Come on now. That's what God is saying. So that's the, the one exception. But beyond that, he says, the animal does not have the right to eat the man. So the man has the right to eat the animal. The, the animal does not have, have the right to eat the man. Great. Nor does man have the right to eat his fellow man or kill him. So here we see that. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood, okay? Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. If a beast kills a man, God will require a reckoning. Now, we don't really know how that plays out. Does that mean that God just kills that animal on the spot? Maybe in some instances. I guess we don't necessarily know how God operates in that in those ways. But likely, you know, we know that, hey, if there's a bear going around on the loose and he's killing human beings, human beings are going after that bear and they're going to kill that bear. That beast isn't going to survive, really. So man goes on these big hunts and, and they kill the beast and they extinguish the beast who kills the man. Movies are made off of this. Books have been written about this 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 plot to go after the beast who kills the the human beings. Nonetheless, God requires a reckoning for human for the spilling of human blood from beast and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, now we are getting into some good stuff here. This is very significant. And if we, if I continue in this series on common grace, this will become a major talking point. This will be a, a very big talking point. What does Kuiper say? Point four. God provides the establishment of government, and the institution of the death penalty. God provides the establishment of government and the institution of the death penalty. Right here. When is government established? Right here. When is the death penalty instituted? Right here. Are we still under the covenant, the Noahic covenant? Yes. 
What does that mean? That means that government is still applicable to us today and the institution of the death penalty. We're going to get back into that a little bit here, but let's think about why this is a gracious thing. Don't forget that man's heart is still evil. Go back to chapter 4 in Genesis. Adam's first son, Cain. What does Cain do? Cain kills his brother Abel. Man, like one generation past Adam. Boom, his his first offspring. And right off the bat, we see murder. We see murder. That's where man's heart goes when it's not restrained. It goes to murder. It goes to the spilling of blood. So would it not also be possible that this could happen with Noah's sons? We have to ask that question. Couldn't this possibly still happen with Noah's sons? Couldn't, you know, Shem go after Ham or whatever and boom, they just get into a little skirmish and before you know it, they're all dead. And oh, well, I guess that ends humanity right there. Yeah, that could happen. Not only is man vulnerable from the beasts that roam the earth, the lions and tigers and bears, but man is also vulnerable from being killed by a fellow man because man's heart is evil. So what's God's common grace solution for this? What's the one of the blessings of the Noahic covenant to protect man in this way? Government and the death penalty. I'm going to quote Kuiper here. Up to this point, three factors have been operative in causing people to disappear from the earth. Predatory animals, murder, and the flood. People were terrified of those three factors, and it is over against those three factors that God places the contracted and diminished human race in safety. Against the flood by means of his promise, against the predatory animal by means of his ordinance, and against murder by means of his commandment. The commandment is capital punishment. That's the commandment. To put to death the murderer. Now, some have argued that this isn't a commandment. That God is not actually commanding capital punishment here. But simply being prophetic and saying like in some mysterious way uh, the murderer is eventually going to reap what they sow. You know? Fate's going to catch up with them. They're going to eventually die in some way because they murdered somebody. And it's just mysterious and we don't really know how it works, but God's in control of it in some way. So some people have kind of posited that. Or some say that God is just saying, hey, here's the deal. Uh, Man is going to seek vengeance when his loved one is killed. And we know this is true. Like, yes, we know this. Like, how many movies have been made off of the plot that some guy's family gets brutally murdered or something and he goes on a vengeance trip? Kills everybody. We love those movies. Why do we love those movies? Because we feel that. We feel that. Especially us as men. Man, like, if if a guy came and, and murdered my family, everything in me from my flesh, would want to go seek vengeance and put him to death. So some have said, well, this is God saying that that's going to happen. If you kill if you kill somebody, his family is going to come seeking vengeance and he's in, and you're going to die. But is that what God is saying here? Is that, is that all this is? No. No. And why do we know this? Why do we know that this is a commandment for capital punishment by the phrase for God made man in his own image whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image so think about the logic here if this was simply stating that oh because man is going to seek vengeance the murderer is going to die, then this statement for God made man in his own image would be totally 
odd. It would just would not fit. The, the argument then would be that that vengeance, the desire for vengeance, comes from the fact that man is an image bearer. And in many ways, like a, a vengeance, seeking vengeance and being filled with rage and anger and hatred is, is sinful. That's from the flesh. And therefore then the logic would be that your desire, your sinful desire, your angry, bitter, you know, vengeance trip comes from the image of God who is good and perfect. No, 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 no. That, that makes no sense. That's not what this is saying. Because of the statement, for God made man, is a man in his own image, we know this is a commandment for capital punishment. And now we marry this or we connect this to the institution of government because there needs to be order to this. This cannot be a chaotic process. This is not about vengeance on you know, man going on a vengeance trip for himself. This is about the image of God being dishonored and there needing to be a just punishment for that. God created man in his own image. So when a human being kills a human being, they are dishonoring the image of God. They are dishonoring God himself whose image is on this person. And that's a big deal. And such an act cannot go unpunished. However, since God is the one being dishonored, and God is the one who gives life and is the author of life. It is God alone who has the authority to take life and to punish murder. God has that jurisdiction because the image, his image is on human beings. He is the author of life. He alone has the jurisdiction to take it and to punish murder. And it must go punished because murder is dishonoring God himself. Now, God is sovereign over the means. Let's let's pause. Let's think again. A parallel um, example, again with evangelism. God is sovereign who he has elected to save. He's elected certain individuals before the foundation of the world, but he's sovereign over the means, and so he sends an evangelist to bring the gospel so that through hearing the gospel message, somebody may come to Christ through faith. So, God has means to punish those who desecrate his image in humanity, who murder. And the means is the commandment to man to kill and put to death the murderer. This isn't about personal vengeance, which likely means then, I mean, if we, it's implied then that this is somebody who has been given the authority to do this, who really isn't connected to the murderer. It's somebody who has been delegated authority from God to do this. That's why we see this as the institution of government. God is delegating authority to, to someone to put to death the murderer so that this isn't just a free-for-all vengeance fest. And if it was a free-for-all free vengeance fest, think about what would happen. Some guy murders another guy. His family seeks vengeance and murders that guy or puts him to death. And then the family of that guy comes and seeks vengeance and puts to death another person. It's just like it's, it's chaos and it would just keep going and people would just – nobody would survive. It needs to be kind of a one-and-done thing. Somebody needs to be delegated authority to look at the situation and go, okay, that man just put that man to death, murdered him unjustly. We need to take that first man then and, and put him to death. Capital punishment, and it's done after that. Nothing more than that. There's order to this, and this is about God. God is the one who seeks vengeance, not man. Let's think about this in light of Romans 13.1. What does Romans 13 say? Well, starting in verse 1, we're going to read more than that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There it is. 
those who the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror of good con or to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. There it is. He does not bear the sword in vain. Bearing the sword, that's capital punishment. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God's wrath. He is the instrument of God, the minister of God, diakonos, the servant of God, the rod of God, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to, to whom taxes are owed. Revenues to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, there it is. So, capital punishment is instituted right here in the blessings of the Noahic Covenant. And it's connected to the institution of government because there needs to be order to this process. It can't just be a free-for-all chaos fest. God has delegated authority to the governing authorities that he has instituted to put to death the evildoer. And in from our passage in Genesis 9, that evildoer is the murderer who has dishonored the image of God in man. Hopefully that makes sense. That is a common grace thing. That is common grace. That restrains evil. That restrains evil. Obviously it restrains evil. If you know that if you murder somebody, you're going to get killed, put to death, then you probably aren't going to murder someone. You, Yeah, you might still be sinful and evil. You are sinful and evil. You know, let's think of a non-believer here for sure. Yeah, they might still have anger in their heart and they might actually desire to kill someone. But because they know that there's going to be consequences, the consequences being death, they're, they're restrained. That is the bar to the cage. It's the bar to the cage that Kuiper describes. And it keeps the beast from being unleashed. Government, punishment, capital punishment specifically, that is common grace. Praise God that he instituted government into this fallen world. Praise God that he instituted capital punishment. It's gracious. It restrains humanity so that they can actually live a life and flourish in some way and develop businesses and things like that. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. It's common grace. Now, I'll have that be the conclusion of this, this episode. Uh, specifically as we looked at the Noahic Covenant. There's a lot more to talk about, especially as it pertains to government and their role. But I want I want to just kind of end on this note. Think about that. Think about that. This is the institution of government. And government was instituted to do what? To put to death the murderer. Does that not mean that government's primary and first role is to exercise capital punishment and is not the Noahic covenant still operating today yes yes and so think about that you know I firmly believe that we should be practicing capital punishment today in this country without a doubt we should not be locking murderers up in prison for their entire life we should be putting them to death God commands it God commands it right here under the Noahic Covenant, and it's a common grace thing. It's common grace. We should be doing it. So, with that being said, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to get these out weekly again, these these podcast episodes. As most of you probably know that I'm finishing up my seminary degree. Um, I'm coming into my winter break here in about a week, so I should have a good chunk of time, well, five, five-ish weeks in December and January to really pump them out. Um, but then I only have one more semester left of, of seminary, and then I graduate in May. 
Uh, I'll see what's next for me after that. I'm going to be thinking about PhD studies, but we'll see where God leads me. Um, but so yeah, be patient with me. I'm trying to be weekly. We'll certainly pick up these episodes once I'm get into this winter break. But again, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the the, the podcast, and please leave a rating on Apple Podcast. Apparently, I've been told that it helps with discoverability. So if somebody searches a keyword or something, you know, the podcasts that have the most ratings, those will be the ones that pop up first on the search bar and are easily found by people looking for a new podcast. So that would be a wonderful gift that you could give me is a rating. Um, but yeah, tune back into the next episode as we continue thinking about God's common grace. Bye.